Here we go. Monday night, the music starts. We get excited. Time for Iron Sports. True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Going to be a great show for you once again. Unfortunately for me, because I enjoy when he's here, Ira's not in studio. There's a good reason for that, Ira, though. And this really, you know, couple of months here, this is a pretty busy time for you. Got a lot to take in. Where you been? Um, I was at the Penn State Auburn game, and I flew back from Auburn. It, it's Auburn is tough to get to. You know, for many years they didn't even play a lot of the big games in Auburn because you go fly to Atlanta. It's about two and a half hour drive to Auburn. I absolutely loved the campus, the school, everything. Big fan of Auburn. The people were warm and friendly. Penn State had a big win. It was great. It was the first Big Ten team to ever go and play a game at Auburn. And then I flew back to New York and I go see the Pirates and the Yankees uh, play tomorrow night. So any idea? So much sports: baseball, yeah. football, everything going on. So we'll talk all about uh, Ira's escapades at Auburn. We're going to talk NFL. We're also going to talk with Seth Wickersham. We've had him on the show before, Ira. He's a wealth of knowledge, and he's got some relevant stuff to discuss. Tell us about Seth. Well, he's the, uh, I would say, the Tom Brady expert. He wrote the book called um, It's Better to Be Feared about the Patriots dynasty. I had interviews with, uh, he's an ESPN writer who's been, and this was the book of the year, last year at hardcover. His uh, paperback comes out. So we thought it was a good chance to bring him on because everybody talks about Brady. So we're going to ask him about Brady and the Dolphins, Brady and the Raiders, Brady and Giselle, Brady and everything else. Uh, you can never have too much of Tom Brady. So it'll be exciting to have his opinions and comments about Tom Brady. Don't forget you can follow Ira anywhere across social media at Ira on Sports. Make that one of your first follows, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Ira on Sports. So Ira... Let's jump right into it. And, and we're actually, this is one of the rare shows where we're going to have live football on. Tennessee and Buffalo kicking off in about 10 minutes. We'll keep you updated on that game as we go. But so we're two weeks into the season. I don't think we really know anything yet. Like, who, you know, who's the, the real teams? Who's the pretenders? Who's the contenders? But I will say this. We got some great weeks of football. I mean, it's getting better and better every game. We, we've been really lucky so far. I, it, it just, I'm sitting, I was in Atlanta after the Penn State game. I could not make it. If Atlanta was playing a football game, I would have dropped into her home. I would probably go to that game, but I just couldn't get a flight to go anywhere because it was difficult driving back when you're watching all the games. And I was at a sports bar about a mile from the airport. Uh, it, it, was fun. it was a hookah bar. So they're doing hookah and they're playing the loudest music you can imagine. But they had the Sunday ticket. So I have all the games on. I'm watching that going crazy. And then I'm going to catch my plane, but I still have the Sunday ticket on my iPad so I can keep watching the games. And I'm on a plane then. And I was able to watch the Sunday night game last. So it was pretty amazing. I could get that, you know, the Bears and Packers. But it was just from one game, from the one o'clock block to the four o'clock block to the, to the eight o'clock game. Uh, excitement all to, all around. I just love yesterday. Tremendous. Yeah, so let's jump right into our, our local team. And Ira, so I've lived in South Florida for 13 years, and never in my life have I seen this fan base as excited as they are after yesterday's game. I don't know if this silences the critics on Tua, but you got to look at the stat line. It has to mean something to you. I don't know if the Ravens lost that game or if the Dolphins won it, but congratulations to all the Dolphins fans in Tua today. Amazing victory. Uh, the last 711 times a team's been up 21 points in the fourth quarter NFL game, they've won. Now it's 70, 711 and one. Uh, when you t- think about when Mike McDaniel, Chris Greer, when they put together this team and they put uh, Jalen Waddle and uh, Tyreek Hill together, uh, you're like, and with Tua, and everyone said, look what the possibilities to be endless. And now, instead of you're looking at the Duper Clayton, Swan Stallworth, Branch Lidnikov, Randy Moss, Chris Carter, I, I, Rice Taylor, I was like link, link, listing all the great t- tandems, but none of them had the speed that Waddle and Hill have. Nobody has this electrifying, and what you saw is absolutely being totally blown out in a game by the Ravens. And the Ravens, and for them to come back, I mean, Tua, almost 500 yards passing. Six touchdowns, which tied the, the, the Dolphin record with Marino and Greasy. He only had one sack for the game. He threw four touchdown passes in the fourth quarter. Tyreek Hill, um, 11 catches, 190 yards, two touchdowns. Jalen Waddle, 11 catches, 171 yards, two touchdowns. I had on my fantasy team uh, Tua and Waddle, and I mean, I'm running away, setting an all-time record because they both had some of the two of the greatest games you could possibly imagine. Uh, but it was like a crazy game. I mean, it, the Dolphin defense collapsed, totally collapsed. I was texting you, I can't, where is this Dolphin defense? From the touchdown that the Ravens did on the opening kickoff, they're up 
35-14, entering the fourth on Lamar Jackson's 75-yard run, where it just looked like he was just running down the field and no one wanted to tackle him. And then Tua had a 75-yard drive, and then the Ravens stopped on fourth and one. And then this is what happened. You saw this with the Jets-Browns game. I, it's like you're up by all these points, like you're up by 14 points. Why would you let Tyreek Hill get behind you? Why, just let them dink and dunk. And there he throws the 48-yard pass to Hill, and then the Ravens three and out of punt, and then they throw a 60-yard pass to tie it 35-35. Tucker kicks the field goal to make it 38-35, but doesn't stop this explosive Miami offense that drives right down there and uh, and Tua throws it to Waddle for the touchdown for the win of 42-38. But the key is the thing that this Dolphin offense, we kept saying, wow, they just don't throw the ball down the field and Tua doesn't have arm strength and all those other things. And they throw a 48-yard pass and a 60-yard pass. Just amazing. And, and to have wide receivers like Hill and Waddle who are not only explosive and fast, but who get open, can run after the catch and catch the ball. Like they're just tremendous. I, I am the possibilities for this team are endless. No, you got to be happy if you're a Miami Dolphins fan waking up today or even yesterday afternoon. Uh, social media was going nuts. We're happy for uh, our fans here in South Florida. Let's go back to Thursday night, Ira. This confused a lot of people being only on Amazon. I know quite a few people who said the Amazon feed was terrible. Mine was fine at my house, so I was happy about that. But we saw maybe the two best, you know, most explosive quarterbacks in the league facing off with Mahomes versus uh, uh, Justin Herbert. And the game... Score-wise, a little underwhelming, but still a great game. It was a great game. I was excited for it. I, I watched it. And it was, it's, the problem is that you go to a bar on Thursday, and most bars don't know how to get Amazon Prime. They can't even. I'm lucky to get. Like, if you're going to join the internet tournament, you say True TV. They have no idea what True TV is. Trying to get Amazon Prime is it's hopeless. I mean, it's beyond hopeless. I think I went to ten bars in New York, and one had it on. And even ones is at Sports Bar, Sports Bar. They have no clue how to get it. But. I think the thing was at halftime, the Chiefs played terrible. They're down 10-7, and you listen to the commentators. They're like, oh, the Chargers are dominating. Justin Herbert's so good. The Chiefs have all these problems. I'm like, they're down 10-7. I mean, this is, <laughs> and Patrick Mahomes is down 28-7 or 35-7. He could come back. But at 17-7, uh, the Chargers are driving, and Herbert gets a pick six by Jalen Watson. Made it 24-17. Herbert was hurt. Uh, and then it was like at that point they cut it to three, but then the Chiefs ran the clock out on him. And it's like you can't, if you're Justin Herbert, you're great, you're good. It's like for the Chargers, but you got to win that game. You can't throw that pick six right there. And that was a huge, huge play. And I got to give, and look, Mahomes looks great. He has eight players with two more catches. He doesn't have Tyreek Hill. This is one of those things where the Chiefs now are 2 0. They look great. And Tyreek Hill's in the Chiefs. It's a win-win. Tyreek Hill's playing great. Dolphins look good. And also the Chiefs look good. The fact that now it's forcing Mahomes to use other receivers, to use his running backs like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, uh, play a smart game, and, and, and he's playing as well as he's ever played. Patrick Mahomes, 11 different receivers have caught a ball from him in two weeks. So it just goes to show you how good he is with the field vision. And really, you can't stop anyone when he's on. Uh, I run Sports, True Oldies Channel. It's 7-11, right around 7:25. Seth Wickersham's going to join us. Talk a lot about Tom Brady, but let's talk about about their game now. And Ira, New Orleans has just been a perpetual thorn in Tom Brady's side. And I'm looking at this game, and I'm thinking, this might be the highest scoring game of the week. And it really wasn't. It might have been the sloppiest game of the 1 o'clock. So I was not expecting that from two disciplined teams like these. Yeah, I mean, Brady was lost his four straight games. I was there last year when everybody thought the Bucks were going to win, and that would have given them home field advance throughout the playoffs. That loss to New Orleans last year might have cost Brady the MVP. Remember, he was sort of in the lead going to that game. They lose that game, play terrible. Brady had a bad game. Rodgers jumps him. Rodgers wins the MVP. I think if Brady wins that game, you know, handily, I think Brady wins the MVP last year. So it cost him the MVP. But no Kamara for uh, New Orleans, no Godwin for the Tampa Bay. Brady was upset. He's throwing a surface tablet. Everyone's going crazy that he's throwing his tablet. And whatever. It's three three at the end of three at a three period at three at the third quarter. Then the third quarter's three three, and then it's just there's a fight. Uh, uh, Mike Evans gets is like in the face of Mark Lattimore, which they fought before. Actually, it was Lattimore and Fournette arguing, and Evans came out of nowhere and hit Lattimore, which he had done five years ago, the exact same thing. So they throw everybody out of the game. The Saints go nuts. They're all upset. And Jameis Winston here on the sidelines like, let's go get him. Let's go get him. And the next two times he had the ball, 
he throws that interception. So Winston, who had played smart the whole game, then throws two interceptions, and then Brady had that beautiful, beautiful back-of-the-corner pass to Bernard Perriman for a touchdown. They got a field goal. And Brady, look, 18-34, 190 yards, one touchdown. Uh, Davis Winston, though, three interceptions. And uh, that was just, it, it was a, I thought it was a sloppy game, bad game, Tampa Bay's 2-0, and uh, they clearly look like the best team in the NFC. So, we talk about hot seats, and the name that always comes up is Matt Rule, and we'll talk more about him in a minute. But if you're Frank Reich of the Indianapolis Colts, that seat's getting warm for sure. After tying Houston last week, they get crushed by Jacksonville. And this was a team, I know Matt Ryan's not what he used to be, but this is a roster that thinks it can go to the Super Bowl. And you haven't seen anything like that through two weeks. I mean, if you're in Indianapolis and you start the season, okay, we have Houston's schedule, Jacksonville's schedule, 2-0. Okay, yeah, 2-0. Let's and call, let's, you know, that, that, it was clearly 2-0. For the Colts to lose both those games and not be ready to play this game. Actually, remember last year the Colts went down to Jacksonville. The only reason the Steelers got in the playoffs was the Colts lost when they were like at, what was it, 16-point favorite? Yeah. It, it was like a college football upset. That's how crazy it was. Um, this was terrible, terrible loss for Indianapolis. Uh, Jonathan Taylor, their star running back, nine carries, 54 yards. Frank Reich now is 0-5 in Jacksonville. And, you know, they want to complain. They, they've now, they bring in Phillip Rivers and Carson Wentz, now Matt Ryan, who looked absolutely terrible with three interceptions, five sacks. His quarterback rating was six. Whereas Trevor Lawrence, 25 for 30, 235 yards, two touchdowns, a QB rating of 95. Uh, Jacksonville, under Doug Peterson, I mean, this is night and day from last year in terms of with Urban Meyer. And you could just see Trevor Lawrence why everyone says he's a superstar, why he's going to be great. This was perfect, and they look good. And Jacksonville's now, as crazy as this seems, Jacksonville might win this division over, over Indy. You know, because right now they're one one but I, it's like you could actually, I mean, they won 24 nothing. They shut them out. So I really like uh, how Jacksonville played in this game. I mean, look, Tampa, Jacksonville, my, the Dolphins, they're all, the three Florida teams are doing great. <laughs> and we'll, we'll see what happens. Tennessee is the perpetual winner of that division. They're going to play Buffalo tonight, so they may be 0-2, and we'll keep you updated on that one as we progress through Ira on sports. So, Ira, I, I, don't, I didn't know what to think so much of, of this New England and Pittsburgh game because New England looked bad against Miami last week. I took Pittsburgh to win, and it just didn't seem... Like, you guys couldn't get anything going. And Najee, maybe, you know, they said he was going to be completely healthy. He didn't really look it. What was your thoughts here on your uh, Pittsburgh Steelers not getting the win? Uh, you almost think about, like, the water boy when Henry Winkler can't beat that one <laughs> other coach. I mean, Mike Tomlin is a great coach. I think he's – but, boy, Bill Belichick is just has his number. It's just he cannot get – whether – this is the first time since 1998, no Brady, no Ben. Like, 24 years, no Brady, no Ben Rosenberger on this. Tom Belichick is 13-4 and four against Tomlin. Uh, it was, oh boy, the Steelers, when they play, is this, are these games sloppy? They're just terrible. 3-3 three, three in, in the first half at the end, and then Mac Jones threw to Nelson Aguilar. What a catch. I mean, they get criticized in Philadelphia's alligator arms. That was one of the best catches I've seen all year for a touchdown. They did 10-3, and it was 10-6 at the end of the third. And you're like, boy, the Steelers could win this game. It's a messy game. And they punt to Gunnar Eslowski, who played for the Patriots, and you talk about a muff on the 10-yard line. It hit him in his helmet on the punt. It came right down and hit him right in the helmet. Uh, they scored a touchdown, made it 17-6. Steelers did score, make it 17-14. But in the fourth quarter, New England, they ran 23 plays. It took 12 minutes of the play of the time. Steelers had six plays for three minutes. And they literally just ran the clock out. They were able to convert two third downs. And as we're seeing with Cleveland and these other teams, we talk about this all the time on Iron Sports. The best defense at the end of the game is a good offense. Don't score the touchdown. Run the clock out. Don't give the team to the other. Don't get the ball to the other team so they can get kick crazy field goals. You had the lead, and New England with Belichick, Mac Jones, perfect ending to that game, and, and they held on, and they're one and one, and the Steelers are one and one. We talked about Matt Rule earlier. You know about he's, he was on the hot seat before the season started. And, man, Carolina just looks listless. I was not going to be surprised if he was fired today. It really was not going to shock me. And on the other side of the coin, as a Giants fan, I don't think this team is necessarily good or going to the playoffs. But if you are a fan of the Giants, you have to be at least excited that this team looks like it's going in the right direction for the first time in a decade. Well, you have a kicker called Graham Gano who is kicking 51, you know, making all his field goals, winning games at the end of the game by kicking out field goals. The Giants did something again with the Patriots did. Smart playing at the end of the game. You know, again, they ran the clock out when Carolina, after they took the lead in 19-16, they didn't let Carolina get the ball. Carolina didn't have that last drive. Really disappointed. Look, 
I get surprised by certain things. Baker Mayfield shocked me. I felt I felt there was going to be so much more. He was 14 for 29, 145 yards. That's it. 145 yards, one touchdown, two sacks, 16 QBR rating. He looked terrible. This is the the Panthers' ninth straight loss under Rule. Rule his record is 10 and 25 as a coach. Um, I expected so much more. So I think it's great win for the Giants because now they're, they're figuring out ways to win. Daniel Jones looks like he's a serviceable quarterback and growing into the role and I just as a Panther the Panthers just could not their McCaffrey is health, healthy they're just not getting it just doesn't seem like anything on offense is working for Carolina they have players they have things and I just feel I don't understand why you know I just again I, I am surprised this is the one team that surprises me I felt so I felt that Carolina under Mayfield they would be 2-0 and and now they're 0-2 yeah and me you and we had Dr. Roto the fantasy expert on two weeks ago and he was saying and it's that we you know you think is the truth DJ Moore he seems to be quarterback proof. He's played with some some pretty low end quarterbacks, and Baker Mayfield seems to be worse than them. It's crazy what's happened there, and I think Matt Rule is going to end up paying the price for this one. So maybe the craziest game of the week, Ira. The Cowboys were two point favorites before Dak Prescott got hurt in this game. He gets hurt, and the line moves nine points. I've never seen that before. And then Dallas comes out and gets the win against the reigning AFC champion Bengals. Well, I'm telling you, this when it's the term AF defending AFC championship is going to be hurting Cincinnati. Because remember, they had some losses last year. They were a little up and down, and then they beat the Raiders, and somehow I don't know how they beat the Chiefs, and they get to the Super Bowl. And but uh, Joe Burrow was sacked. It seemed like every game, like six or seven times last year, he set the record with sacks. And then they revamped the entire offensive line, brought in five new people to the offensive line. We have a great offensive line now. This is much better. He's got sacked the first week by the Steelers six times, seven, then seven times last week. This is, it, there's got to be a point. Maybe it's not the players. Maybe it's Burrow because he holds the ball too long. Maybe it's Zach Taylor not putting a, a running back there in the backfield helping or something. But th- this could be more. This is serious. You cannot keep having him sack six or seven times. The offense looks terrible. He didn't even throw for 200 yards. Cooper Rush outplayed him, the Dallas quarterback who was filling in for Dak Prescott. And it was interesting. Don't you always see this? When the backup quarterback comes in, a wide receiver that he like, throws on the side when no one pays attention. <laughs> you know, Noah Brown comes in. And Noah Brown had five catches, 91 yards, one touchdown. Nobody had him in his fantasy league. Um, but Dallas was up 17-9. Bengals went on a 19-play drive, 80, 83 yards, tied at 17-17. And uh, Dallas punts, but the Bengals went three and out. They had a chance to win this game, and then Dallas went down and kicked that field goal to win the game. But it was like the Bengals had their chance. They came back in the game just like the Steeler game. They've lost two really close games. But you really thought when you look at the Bengals, they're like, you're going to be winning these games. Th-, you know, you got to to beat the Bengals. You have to score 35, 40 points a game. And Bengals are only putting up 17. They deserve to lose. So I don't know if you saw this, but it's kind of going viral, Ira. There was a gentleman at the Vegas game in the suites popped a bottle of champagne in the third quarter as Vegas had a big lead. And what do you know? Here comes Kyler Murray and the Cardinals uh, with another just f- crazy finish, another great comeback, and a disappointing start for Vegas, who a lot of people said that they were you know, almost surely a playoff team. Well, again, if people think these games are over in the NFL, they're crazy because of what you were watching this. I mean, the Vegas was up 20 to nothing in halftime, 23 7 at the end of the third. And the second half, they're outscored 29 to 3 in overtime. I mean, Arizona went down on, when well, they went down to the 11 yard line, the fourth one were stopped. The Raiders went three and out. And then Arizona, fourth and four, like the game is over. It, it, it literally over. And they had to go to Vegas. They got down. They got a first down, then a touchdown. Murray went on the two point play. He ran around like the longest yard with Burt Reynolds. Remember when he ran around and whatever, <laughs> just crazy to score. That was for the two-point play. Remember, they had to score two touchdowns and two two-point plays. The Raiders go five plays out and punt. Arizona goes down <laughs> eight plays, 73 yards. They went on a fourth and one. They went on a fourth and four. Then they had four plays for the three-yard line, and they could score. It was like fourth and three. They get a penalty. Then they go down another. They must have ran like that last play, like 20, 20 plays. They finally scored, and then Murray threw a pass for a touchdown. And for the for the uh, for the two point play to make it tied up, and then in overtime, the Raiders the, the Cardinals couldn't move the ball. The Raiders seemed to be moving the ball, having their chance, and then Runner, Renfro fumbles the ball, and Murphy runs it in for a touchdown. What a it's just a deflating loss. I mean, the Raiders had this game won. If they would have stopped, there might have been like fifteen plays where if they would have stopped the the Cardinals, they would have won the game. 
And I, again, I thought this game was totally over. It, it was, they needed like everything. They, it was almost like you have to draw a perfect hand and the Raiders let them do it. But I, I think the Raiders played that fourth quarter terribly and defensively was a disaster. Very bad performance. Kyler Murray, by, according to StatCast, ran 61 yards on that <laughs> conversion to make it work. Not many guys in the league uh, that can do that. Jets in Cleveland, one of the least anticipated games of the week, actually ended up being a pretty exciting game, Ira. And we said that the Browns might have some growing pains here starting off the season with Jacoby Brissett. But I think you got to beat the Jets. <laughs> and, you know, the Jets walked out of this one, and they're 1-1. One and one. We talked about the, uh, the Dolphin game 771 times. This is 2,229 games. A team leading by 13 minutes in the final two minutes has won. They Now, not since 2001 has a team lost. Well, the Browns did that, and they did it again. This, But there's no excuse for this. They're up 24-17, and they're driving, and uh, the Jets have no timeouts. Literally, and, and Hunt goes out of bounds. All he had to do was go down and stop. I forgot a first down. The clock would have ran out. And then after you think that happens, they go to the two, they go right before, you know, you would think that, oh, I'm going to tell Nick Chubb. Someone said, Chubb, just go down. The clock will run out. And he goes and he scores a touchdown. It's unbelievable that you would think that this would happen. Okay, so that happens. They score a touchdown. But still, they, you know, so what? They're still, uh, you know, they're still up. Uh, they're still up by two, you know, they're up by like, two, two touchdowns. Then they let the Jets, Corey Davis, go 68 yards for a touchdown. You, there's a minute and something left in the game. All you have to do is let them catch anything in the middle, play prevent, prevent, whatever. They have no timeouts to let Corey Davis. He was 30 yards behind it. It was. As I almost thought when I saw the play that he ran for the sidelines. I said, they ran a guy in for the sidelines. How in the world does he get so wide open? Then you get the onside kick, and they score again. Absolutely the most ridiculous thing. It was one of it is the worst loss I can remember because they had the game. One of the running backs would have gone down. But even then, if you just don't let Corey Davis go for Joe Flacco to drive down and score two touchdowns in the minute like a minute to go, absolutely and, and give up the onside kick also. I mean that never happens. Like twelve percent give it on. So everything had to go right for the but but the Browns just terrible performance. Like, horrendous. I mean as much as you want to criticize the Raiders, but the Browns were even worse. Yeah, and it's one of those things where the New York media wants Joe Flacco to, to keep this job over Zach Wilson. I think that's crazy, but the Jets have come out and said today Joe Flacco will be the starter for Game 3. Um, Seattle and San Francisco, Ira, and this was the you know the worst-case scenario, but with the best backup plan. Trey Lance going to miss the rest of the season. Jimmy G comes right in like he never, never, never left, which he didn't. The 49ers traded three first-round picks to move up nine spots to get Trey Lance. He's now played six games in a 1,000 days. It'll be like after being hurt and sitting out this year, it'll be like six games in like 1,300 days because he sat out for COVID when he went to college and everything. But, boy, the 49ers always said, well, they'll trade Jimmy G to the team that needs to get a quarterback hurt. Well, they got their quarterback hurt. But, honestly, I think the 49ers are better. I, I was not sold that Lance was playing that great. I think that this team wants to win now. And uh, I'm not saying it's you know good for Trey Lance or hurt, but for the 49ers, I think they're the better quarterback. The problem is they got to keep Jimmy G healthy for the rest of the way. <laughs> you know he probably gets hurt. Yeah, and it's one of those things where the rumors are that a lot of the veterans want Jimmy G in there. They're, they're trying to win a Super Bowl. They don't want a rookie quarterback in there, so they, they may have gotten their wish. Rams in Atlanta, Ira, and this was a game where you'd think that the Rams were just going to bounce back massive after getting crushed in Week 1 by the Bills. And Atlanta, I don't know if Atlanta's good. I mean, they're 0-2, but they made this game exciting at least. Well, remember, tw- there was the score is 28-3. That was the score that Atlanta was ahead over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the score that it was ahead over uh, when, last year. Right, uh, game, but let's just have to say this again. That was the score that Atlanta was ahead of the, the Patriots. Uh, the Patriots. Yeah. And Brady came back and won. And also remember that the Rams last year were killing the Buccaneers, and then they blew the lead. They were up 28-3. 23, Stafford in the middle of the third quarter throws interception. Doesn't need to throw. When you're up that points, why risk a pass? What a stupid pass. Then Atlanta gets two touchdowns. They block a punt for another touchdown. Then the cup fumbles, and the Falcons have the ball with a chance to win the game. They literally had a chance to game, but Marietta threw an interception. But they literally were, were having the ball. They think that they were down 28-3 in the middle of the third quarter and had that chance to win because you have a punt block. And you uh, and, and you and you and you throw the interceptions, and you play bad defense, and you can't do anything. It's just it's embarrassing. And Stafford again, 
this he had two interceptions now five interceptions in two games maybe stop doing the ATT commercials and focus on not throwing interceptions because I can't see the Rams getting back to Super Bowl if he's going to have 30 35 interceptions for the year he should be talking to Baker Mayfield about not doing commercials because <laughs> he seemed to have uh, tanked both of them uh, at least in the short term um, we'll, we'll fly through these last couple of games but Ira I will say every year in fantasy there's a guy who I don't draft because I just don't think he's that good and it burns me bad. This year, Amon Ross St. Brown. This guy, he's legit, and he's got a lower-tier quarterback in Jared Goff. And this was, uh, this was another exciting game where I wasn't expecting it. Well, Dr. Roto likes him because he said, Amon Ross St. Brown from USC, I saw him in college. I thought he was amazing. And then he went to Detroit at the end of last year. He was putting up these big games. And they're like, oh, well, I don't know if he's going to be that good. And we don't know about Detroit. He came in nine catches, 160 yards, two touchdowns, carried the ball two times for 70 yards. Jared Goff had four touchdowns. I mean, right now, like, Jared Goff looked better than Matt Stafford did yesterday, yeah. which is crazy. Um, and this is another game. I mean, Detroit was up 22 nothing and almost blew the game. Washington came back with Carson Wentz. I mean, it, whatever the halftime score is of these games, you can't, whatever. But uh, the Lions are one-on-one. They had a tough loss in the first game. So, look, the Lions look like they're, they're not a pushover this year. They can beat anybody. Yeah, and uh, so we've got about a minute or two till we have to get to Seth Wickersham here on Iron Sports on the True Oldies channel. Run us through the rest of the games here. I think might be a little bit worried about Russell Wilson if I'm a Broncos fan. Oh, I mean, that was unbelievable against Houston. I mean, he was 14 for 31, one touchdown, one reception, just looked terrible. Houston didn't really, I mean, they looked bad because Houston, everyone expected me one of the worst teams in the league, but a bad win, 16-9, just terrible. And then uh, the Monday night game, or the Sunday night game, Chicago-Green Bay, uh, it looks like Green Bay, the way they're going to win, first of all, they, they said they own Chicago, they always win. Uh, Rodgers played smart, but they had 200 yards rushing with between Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon, uh, and that was the key, is, is the Packers are going to run the ball like that, they're going to win. And it's funny, they do this, they're the greatest regular season team in running the ball, but it comes to playoffs, they can never do it, uh, but that was what those two games, the, the, the Denver game, which Wilson, I'm concerned about, Rodgers, of course, there's no concern. Buffalo Bills just scored a touchdown with nine minutes to go in the first quarter, 6 nothing, getting ready. Uh, for the point after attempt. What do you think about Minnesota-Philly tonight, though, Ira? I really think that Minnesota's going to rout them. I I think that Minnesota's a good team. I've been saying it on the show, and I think the Eagles are overrated. I think I agree with you. Minnesota's the second-best team in the NFC. Justin Jefferson, watch him. He's on my fantasy team. Again, I could have set all-time records. (laughs) They have four guys, but I think this is unbelievable. And Alex O'Connell... You're starting to see the Rams have some trouble on offense, and some of these coordinators, like McDaniel from San Francisco, who left at Miami, maybe the genius wasn't the head coach. Maybe it was the coordinator. And and let's see what Alex O'Connell does tonight. But I am looking for a huge win from Minnesota beating Philly. I can't believe what the line's two and a half. I, I agree. I think Jalen Hurts is. Over. I like Jalen Hurts, but I think Philly's overrated. I think Minnesota is way underrated. Wait till you see what happens. We had Dr. Roto, what they said. Minnesota ran a, the prehistoric offense with our <laughs> Anasaurus Rex last year. Now they're running like a modern offense. That's what's going to happen. I think Minnesota puts up 40 to 50 points this game. Let's talk to Seth, Seth Wickersham. It's Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports, 95.9106.9 West Palm Beach. We're honored to have back on the show Seth Wickersham, who is the author of It's Better to Be Feared. We had him last year October, in October. Talk about the hardcover. Now the paperback comes out. Seth, thanks so much for coming on Iron Sports to talk about the Patriots, Tom Brady, everything with that. Great to be here, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Last night, I was on a JetBlue flight from Atlanta. Went to the Penn State Auburn game, Atlanta to uh, Pittsburgh, Atlanta to New York. It was delayed four hours. And on the flight, we're on the tarmac for four hours. I saw oh someone gosh. reading your book. And after, and at the end of the flight, you know, when he finally got to New York at two in the morning, I said, "How is the book?" He goes, "I'm going to be stranded on a deserted island. You got to have this book." He told me to tell you that on there. It was phenomenal. He said it made a four hours sitting on a flight phenomenal. That is the coolest thing. I mean, I might need his name and number and try to figure out a way to, you know, put this on a billboard or something. That is that is really, really cool, um, it, albeit it, the circumstances obviously were horrible, and I'm really sorry about that. That's that's brutal. I've well, been he there. Good, he, he definitely had a good trip. But uh, yesterday we saw Tom Brady uh, throw his Microsoft service, but they won it against the Saints. But you see the skill, the fire, the passion. That's what you write about in, in your book. Uh, it's, it's better to be feared because you can see it even yesterday, how at 45 years old, he's playing as hard as ever. Well, it's that. You know, it's this rage. It's kind of interesting because um, he's someone who, who, for someone who has that level of fire inside him, he conceals it pretty well. 
be, because it's way more consuming and dominant over his life than in a lot of ways we think. And when he was a kid, he would, you know, golf with his dad. And when he would miss shots, he'd throw his clubs and all these things. His dad would put him in timeout, kick him off the course, like trying to like, you know, teach him that this isn't how we behave. And yet here's Tom Brady, the most accomplished quarterback ever at age 45 in week two. And, you know, those, those, urges are still inside him it's so interesting because obviously like he's grown up he's matured he's a different person now and yet some of those things as we know you know those things don't leave us from our childhood we are who we are and you know we regulate them maybe but like the urge is still there and obviously um you know he took it out on the tablet yet again something that he and bill belichick have have a little bit in common over the years well, your paperback book talks about the post, like post since Brady left. The book is phenomenal. The original, the hardcover last year, because you just build up everything about the whole point about where the breakup it happened between Tampa, I mean, between New England and Brady. Mm-hmm. But the one rumor that came out, it was about, I would say, a month ago, this whole Dana White, Gronkowski, about <laughs> the Raiders. And yeah. this, is new, this is breaking news. I'm like, wait, I thought I read that in your book. It's in your book that you wrote last year where you talked about the whole, and you sort of dismissed it. It's, it, it you dismissed it saying that Gruden didn't want him, so it's really not going to happen. Well, and that's what happened. But in the same sense, I think that, like, Look, when Brady was a free agent, I think that there's going to be a lot of stories that come up. Oh, it was a done deal. He was going to go here. That's that stuff just wasn't going to happen. The only place he really wanted to go was San Francisco, and they had just come off a Super Bowl loss to the Kansas City Chiefs. Coaching staff was starting to have some doubts about Jimmy Garoppolo. At the same sense, though, he was clearly the leader of that team. By the way, we could I could say that sentence, and it could still be true for right now, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, he wanted to be in San Francisco. There was no doubt about that. And Kyle Shanahan was on vacation in Cabo, and he instructed his entire coaching staff to look at all of Tom Brady's snaps from 2019. At the end of the day, they thought that he was better than Garoppolo, but they weren't sure it was quite worth it, given his age, to and given the Garoppolo's stature in the locker room, to make that kind of move. And obviously, we've seen what happened. Brady goes to Tampa, wins the Super Bowl right away, the 49ers slogged through another year, that COVID year in 2020 with Garoppolo injured, and then, you know, make a massive trade to go get Trey Lance. And, of course, Jimmy Garoppolo is still the 49ers starting quarterback and will be the rest of the year. But yeah, I, do I, mean, think that, I do think that, like, look, there's going to be a lot of those things. Oh, Brady was thinking, you know, he was a done deal to Vegas. It was a done deal to the L.A. Chargers. You know, whatever, you know, things come up. I think that the only thing he wanted really was San Francisco. And when they said no, he was open to whatever. And it turned out the, the, you know, the Raiders were also someone who decided they looked at him and they decided we're going to stick with our guy. Really his options were down to the chargers and the bucks. And I think that, you know, the bucks atmosphere at the time and proximity to New York city where his son Jack lives um, were, were two of the big, big guiding posts, posts for him. Seth, what about people are forgetting about March about what happened during the period of time of uh, it, it, when in terms of when Brady made a decision. We were in the middle of COVID. Nobody was traveling. I know that Dana White and Gronkowski were talking. They were looking for houses in Vegas. Nobody was looking for anything. Nobody was traveling. So clearly that was not happening. But do you really think that there was a chance if if, if Brady and Belichick could got Kraft could have brought Brady and Belichick? in a room, sat, had meetings, uh, would that have made a difference in Brady staying with New England? No, I don't. And I think that, like, that ship had sailed by that point. And I think that, um, look, there have been problems building between Bill and Tom since right after the, the, the great comeback against the Falcons in the Super Bowl. Brady wanted a contract extension that would, a commitment that would take him into his 40s. Belichick wanted to be much more cautious and careful and kind of a wait-and-see approach. And, you know, then you had the role of Jimmy Garoppolo and the fact that Belichick was so invested in you. You had Brady, you know, expanding some of his interests beyond football, TB12, that year where he was really trying to establish that as a business publicly. And Belichick goes out and bans the, you know, Brady's trainer and business partner, Alex Guerrero, from the Patriots building. And then, of course, you just, that contract issue just continued to hover over everything. And in August of 2019, you know, at that point, Brady and Belichick had six Super Bowls together. 
Brady was trying to negotiate a new contract. He was so frustrated that he almost left training camp. Um, ends up signing a two-year deal, which was really a one-year deal with a little bit of a raise. And 48 hours after that deal was announced, he and Giselle Bunchen put their house up on the market. And that was the Patriots opening the door for Brady to walk out, and he went ahead and walked out. Yeah, 2019 year was weird. They people forget they started that year eight and zero, and I was at yeah. the Raven game when they went to Baltimore. I yeah. seen it. I was at that. It was a Sunday night game. They lose that, then they lost to the Texans. People remember when they lost to the Dolphins at the end of the year, and then the wild card game against Tennessee. But when they started that year out, I mean, they looked great at being eight and zero, and maybe they were going to go you know back to back Super Bowl winners. It appeared that way, but, you know, I think that Brady missed Rob Gronkowski more than, you know, he realized that year, and he just was miserable. I mean, he, those were his words. He was just a miserable, um, you know, you know, quarterback during that time, even as they were winning. And, you know, as we have come to learn, you know, he was in constant contact with Bruce Beal, minority owner of the Miami Dolphins, about, you know, who knows, maybe joining the Dolphins after that season. And um, he was clearly – just unhappy with the way that things had gone and probably the weight of knowing that this was going to be his last year in New England, I'm guessing, played a big part in things. And you just touched upon about Miami. Uh, what what happened there? I mean, there was an issue where that was it. I mean, I was surprised where they when they brought about it wasn't just this past season, but it was that first season that there was some contact between Miami. Of course, that year Miami drafts Tua. So, but it just seemed that that was it, like how how serious was the, was that interaction from Brady's part? Was it sort of Miami just reaching out, hoping something would happen, or, or was there could there was there some seriousness from Brady's part? Well, it was tampering, and every team tampers, but I think that you know they, they came down hard on the Dolphins because it was tampering, and it, there was um, you know the, the issue with Brian Flores and whether he was being you know joking but not joking, paid extra for for losses and the scrutiny and the and the standards that he was being held to, which he thought were completely unfair in the face of you know winning games with that team. Um, you know, I don't know. You know, I guess that only Tom Brady would really know how serious you know he was thinking about that. I do think that um, after you know last season when he knew that it was he was thinking about retiring, the idea of going to Miami and maybe being an executive, you know, was obviously interesting enough that it was out there. But he also, I don't think he really strongly, truly knew if that was what he wanted. And even though it's, you know, 2022 has been a weird year for Tom Brady between, you know, the, the comeback against the Rams in the playoffs, you know, letting it be known that he was noncommittal about returning to the Bucks, news breaking by my colleagues, Adam Schefter and Jeff Darlington, that he was going to retire. He denies those, then he goes ahead and retires. And a week after he retires, he's saying he might unretire. And then a month later, he officially unretires. And then Bruce Arians goes to the, executive suite, which turns out he's actually back on the sideline now. It has just been, and then he leaves training camp for 11 days. There's obviously all these reports in a lot of non-sports publications about um, issues in his marriage with Giselle Bundchen and, you know, how big of a factor that might be weighing on him. It's been a weird year for Tom Brady, and we're only at week two. <laughs> well, we're talking to Seth Winkersham, author of It's Better to Be Feared, The New England Patriots Dynasty. It was voted the nonfiction book of the year by Sports Illustrated last year. It's one of the best books I've ever read. Um, the year before, the redemption year, he wins the, the uh, Super Bowl. The Patriots struggle with Cam Newton. They end up yeah. drafting Matt Jones. That was for so long. It seemed like for a decade it was, is it Brady? Is it Belichick? Is it Brady? Is it Belichick? And now that Belichick's been struggling and he's barely being the Steelers in a terrible game yesterday, and you look at Brady, I mean, clearly Brady has won that argument that it's more Brady than Belichick, even though it might not be true, but in perception it looks like that. Well, yeah. I mean, he went out and did one by himself. And, um, it, you know, it, the he did it with the Bucks. I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like for Robert Kraft to win Tom to watch Tom Brady win a Super Bowl with the freaking Tampa Bay Buccaneers? Um, you know, I, I think that look, there's no question that Bill Belichick's the greatest professional football coach in the modern era. I think that the NFL is just designed to bring teams back to earth, and the fact that the Patriots are kind of slogging along 
even though, you know, look, they're down year seven and nine in a COVID year. And, you know, last year they make the playoffs. Obviously, they get waxed by the Buffalo Bills in it, but they did make the playoffs. And, you know, the fact that the Patriots in a loaded AFC aren't exactly considered on the top echelon, I, I think that that's just like the law of averages um, coming into play here. But I do think that when you look at Bill Belichick's career, the fact that, you know, he let Tom Brady walk and Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft were two people, maybe the people on this earth who should have known better than anybody than to never underestimate Tom Brady. And they did just that. And he goes and, you know, delivers a Super Bowl um, for Tampa Bay. You know, that was, it was that, that to me, you know, I think that like when you, when you talk about like, you know, Bill's post Brady career, I do think that that personnel decision that launched that post Brady career is one of those things that I, I, it won't haunt Bill, but it's part of his record. So that leads to October 3rd, 2021, when I, 2021, when I was, I went up to there. The, first of all, the weather that day was horrendous. Rain, I've never been a game where just like, oh, Bucks, you mean Bucks, got, yeah, Bucks Patriots. Yeah, Bucks yeah. Patriots. And that was so surreal to be back there. I, I guess, you know, you just saw Russell Wilson return to Seattle and they booed him. I don't know what I thought. I, as much as everybody was cheering Tom Brady, I thought it would be even greater. Like, I thought there was still, like, I don't know how you could root the Patriots against Tom Brady. Like, it was, it was such a weird game for the fans. I think they were happy when it's over. Uh, describe what, you, you know, what you're reporting about that game. Well, I mean, I thought it was just terrific. And they did boo the Bucks. Remember, the Bucks like, ran out to midfield and kind of, you know, did a chant. And they did boo during that time. But, I mean, I thought it was just a fascinating game because it's just so rare that you get to see those types of football minds so astute, so resourceful, um, you know, so part of their DNA to fight till the last possible second. It's just so rare you get to see them, people like that, go against each other. Like, I don't know if it's ever really happened. I mean, Bill Walsh and Joe Montana never faced off. And so I thought even though the weather was horrible and I was there too, it it was horrible. You know, I just thought that, like, that game was a really special game and it came down to the wire and, you know, everybody did their signature things. You had Belichick dialing up some confusing things in the red zone and forcing the bucks to kick a field goal. And that's one of his, you know, his, his signature moves over the course of his career is just having brilliant red zone defense. And you have Brady just being so resourceful. I mean, converting third downs, using his feet when he needed to, um, just it took every inch of competitiveness and drive for those two to try to beat each other, and it, you know it came down to the wire, and Patriots just barely missed a field goal, um, you know, and, and Tampa ended up winning. I, you know, but again, it was just even though it was a sloppy game, I thought it was one of the greatest games I've ever seen because you you just don't get those two minds going against each other rarely, if ever. Well, oh no! I chose to, I was that week that day. I could have gone to see Ben play Lambo against Rogers, and I wanted to see that. I'm a huge fan, <laughs> but I said no. I can't miss this game. This is one of the yeah. iconic games in the history of football. You have to be there. Yeah. Then after the game, you write in your book a little bit that Belichick goes in the locker room and they have this private conversation with Brady and sort of what was that? And they spent a long time together, which is you know totally you know not you know, it's very rare that that he didn't walk into another locker room, let alone spend time with other players. They hadn't really talked since Tom left. They just, they hadn't really. And, you know, Brady ended up saying goodbye to Bill over the phone. And, you know, he later told someone he thought it was kind of indicative of where, you know, how their relationship had soured that, you know, Bill didn't, he wasn't able to say goodbye in person to Bill. It turns out Bill wasn't in town, but th- that's how Brady felt. And, you know, I think that, like, the conversation for the longest time really kind of stayed between the two of them, but then details of it kind of, you know, I was able to hear about them some things. And I think that like, look, there's a lot of like there. Um, I'm sorry. There's a lot of love there between those two guys, even if there isn't always a lot of like, and (laughs) I think that like there's, you know, that meeting was one of mutual respect. It's not going to change the course of their relationship. Obviously there are some scars there and they're kind of like a divorced couple who's kind of agreeing to keep things civil for the sake of everybody, but they're not going to get remarried. Um, but I do think that when each of them goes in the Hall of Fame and they use that word love to describe each other, I do think that it'll be sincere and truthful, even if you know they really got on each other's nerves at times. Last year's game versus the Rams. 
I was there. I, first of all, I couldn't believe that Tampa fans were leaving early. It's like if you're watching like a James Bond yeah. film, or something, like like you go, haven't you seen this before? Like they come yeah. back, like he's not dead. It's, they don't even, it'll come back. And I just, I mean, it, the frustration. I was right behind the sideline. His frustration because he realized, look, if we beat the Rams, and we play the Four Niners at home, you see the, then we play the Bengals the Super Bowl. That was going to get back to back Super Bowls. That loss must have really pained him in terms of getting off to a slow start and just missing on the comeback. Well, I think that, like, look, Brady was used to a certain brand of football, and it was incredibly buttoned up. And maybe it was miserable at times in New England, but they were always ready to go. And they had always thought out situation and circumstance to the nth degree. And he knew that Tampa just wasn't as buttoned up as New England. And they won a Super Bowl, even though they weren't as buttoned up. Biggest Super Bowl win of Brady's career, actually. And the next year, he just could tell, you know, that, that the Bucks weren't as buttoned up and that. You know, he was really wondering whether he wanted to continue playing football there. So they go against the Rams. The Rams come out and just drill them for, you know, whatever it was, three and a half quarters. And then the Rams essentially self-destruct, and Brady gets hot. They come back, and they tie the game at 27 with less than a minute left. And, you know, this was kind of the moment that that I don't know this for a fact, but I'm guessing that Tom Brady, after all season watching the Bucks not be as buttoned up as they should have been in certain situations. This was the culmination of that, where all the Bucks have to do is keep the Rams in bounds, and the clock is going to run out. That's what they need to do. Instead, they let Cooper Cup get open for 20 yards, They and then on the, on the two plays later, they run a zero blitz and don't even execute it very well, and it singles up Cooper Cup, who, you know, maybe the game's most dangerous receiver against a safety. Matthew Stafford hits him for whatever it was, 44 yards, and they're able to get down the field and kick the game-winning field goal if time expired. I mean, like, I can't even imagine how angry Tom Brady must have been and with the fact that he probably felt like we could have seen this coming. And, um, you know, obviously a couple days later, you know, word breaks that he's retiring. And was it now? This is a big question. Was it when he announced he was coming back, and then it was announced, first of all, that Arians was going to retire? Like he announced he's coming back, and then Arians announced retire. Was that a condition? I mean, did he really want? I want Todd Bowles, the coach. I mean, I know that Arians had from his Arizona days. He did like the fact that he could pick a successor, but he didn't get a chance in Arizona. But is was that was? Do you think that was a demand from Brady that Arians not be the coach going forward if he's going to come back? I don't know. I mean, was it a demand? Was it something that everybody in management knew that needed to happen for him to return? You know, maybe that would be a little bit of a more accurate phrase. But in the same sense, Arians is around all the time. And, you know, even though I think that Brady and Arians, you know, they like each other personally, I think they have a good personal relationship. Again, it comes down to, like, coaching style and the fact that the Bucks just weren't as buttoned up as Brady likes to be and as buttoned up as he's used to being for the entire team going into – you know, critical games. And, um, but I mean, Arians is around. He was on the sideline yesterday when the Bucks played the Saints. I couldn't believe it. He's like, not only is he on the sideline, he's chirping at the refs. I, I couldn't believe what he was doing there. So, again, it just looks like it's just been a weird year, like I said earlier, for Tom Brady, for the Bucks. And, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's very odd and it's a little bewildering. And now everyone thinks that this is his final year. But, again, I'm not ready to say that. I mean, what's your opinion in terms of you don't know what Tom Brady's going to do? I mean, he's confounding skeptic, and, and you know him better than almost anyone doing all the reporting that you've done. It, it's hard to say for certain, oh, this is clearly going to be a year. I mean, he just doesn't look like he's enjoying it as much. You know, we'll see how it goes you know, this year. But I just I have a hard time believing that he'll continue to play after this year. It's just, again, I don't have any insight other than – you know, what I see, what I hear, who I talk to, but like, you know, I, I have a hard time believing that he's going to stick around for another year after this. He just doesn't look like it's as enjoyable as it used to be. Well, we've been talking to Seth Wickersham. His book, It's Better to Be Feared, the paperback comes out. It actually comes out on Wednesday this week um, on the 21st. I just encourage, I told the story when we started the interview about someone stuck on a plane with me for three and a half, four hours last night who read the book and said, if I'm going to be stranded anywhere, that's what the kind of book, that's the book I want to read if I go to an island. So, but uh, Seth, thanks so much for coming on Iris Sports again. I appreciate it. And, uh, and I hope we can have you back maybe next year for your, another supplement to this book. My pleasure, man. Thank you. 
A lot of fun there with uh, Seth Wickersham here on Ira on Sports. True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. All tied up 7-7, to Tennessee and Buffalo. Two minutes and 40 seconds to go in the first quarter. So, Ira, your goal this year was you want to see some new stadiums. You want to get some new college atmospheres underneath your belt. And I think that you were, you know, very or more than pleasantly surprised with Auburn. You had a great time. Well, I could not wait for this game. I mean, it was a home-and-home, but we played last year – one of the best games I ever went to. Penn State won 28-20. Awesome tailgating. We had a tailgate with like 400 people at the group we were with. It was fun. Perfect weather. The same thing happened at this game. The atmosphere going down. I've been to Tuscaloosa. I've been to Stanford and Georgia where Georgia plays. Also Knoxville uh, for Tennessee. But absolutely loved it. They have this great downtown with lots of sports bars. Classic downtown place. Um, the fraternities are enormous around the stadium. What I liked about the stadium, Jordan Hare, it's ninety thousand seats. It's very close to downtown and the fraternity, so it's more. It's more Penn State. The stadium's a little, a couple miles away. It's, it's harder, longer to walk, but it seemed like everything was together. The campus is great. The tailgating. Everyone was tailgating everywhere. And they don't just do it at Penn State where, oh, you can't tailgate on the soccer field. You can't. T-. They were tailgating in front of the president's house on the lawn. They put tents up <laughs> and they keep it clean and nice. And I just could not believe how many tailgates, how big this is. I mean, as much as I'm from Penn State, we're, we're the king of tailgates. But this is even a better situation. I just liked how it was set up. And, and I said they ran it perfectly. Um, it was great to see. I went to the Penn State section where they had the, the band and some of the cheerleaders. I got a picture with Blair Thomas. You know, Jets fans love, remember Blair Thomas, so that was fun. I got a picture with the Auburn Tiger walking in the stadium when the <laughs> Auburn band was walking in. So I like that. And the stadium is impressive. I mean, there's no seat. Like, I'm 6'1", six, 6'2". Six, My feet could not. I mean, I think the Master Guard is the smallest seats. to sit in. This is even smaller than that. Uh, but the stadium is beautiful. It doesn't have the height on the end zones like some other big stadiums to give it to, like, 100,000. But on both sides, it has, like, a middle section with suites. And then there's a lower and upper. I was sitting on the 50, 25 rows up, which is perfect. I love how they have hedges. Like, on the field, there's these hedges that surround the stadium, which is pretty cool, in the, in the surround the field and uh the war eagle i mean that is i had to make sure i got to see that and get a video which is what i run sports they have this eagle that flies in for the stadium a huge eagle and it lands right there right on the field to start the game so that was cool i mean i just it was just a great i i and after the game i went to a sports bar watch games the fans were so nice they're like thanks for coming to the game did you guys enjoy yourself this is great everybody was like do you need a ride do you need something <laughs> everybody they were buying i mean i had dinner someone paid for my dinner like they were paying for the Penn State fans. I mean, the nicest fans. I saw the same thing in Alabama also, but uh, it was just tremendous. And again, it was the perfect. Oh, the students, the students at Auburn, they wear jackets and ties like <laughs> to the game. It was so hot. And they're sitting there and they're just, there's thousands of students wearing the jacket or ties. They love their football. They love everything. I wish their team for themselves was maybe a little bit better. And so, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about the game itself, Ira. Well, I mean, the Auburn team, Brian Harson is their coach. He brought him from, B, from uh, 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 Boise State. And he's probably, as, as you think, Matt Rule's seat is hot. And Scott, I mean, all the kids, his seat is about, I can't ever be hotter. They're tired of this team. They're mad at him. Um, they were going to this game only three-point underdogs. But Auburn went up 3 nothing. The crowd was so loud. It might have been the loudest crowd I've ever been to on a Penn State a game away. Penn State drove down, made it 7-3. But then T.J. Finley and their other quarterback, Ashford, Finley threw an interception at the end of the quarter. Um, and the Penn State scored, you know, they're up 14-6 at halftime. And Auburn just kept fumbling the ball. It said four turnovers. And Penn State outscored them 27-6 in the second half. Nick Singleton, who, if you haven't seen him play, he's carried the ball uh, like 30 times on the year and had 350 yards. He's getting 10 yards, averaging 10 yards a carry. He's the freshman of the year in high school basketball football last year, comes to Penn State, you know, ran for 53 yards and a touchdown. Uh, Auburn fumbled the ball again. Penn State got a field goal, made it 24-6. And then Ashford throws an interception, and Keenan Allen scored, made it 31-6. Everyone was leaving the stadium. I'm like, when, when are they going to leave at 31-6? And then Singleton rushes again for 54 yards on a touchdown. He is the type of back that has that explosive speed that you just can't catch, but strong enough on the legs that just blows by the line and, and can be around tackles. I mean, I just, I'm glad they're hand, I just, they handed the ball more to him. But Keaton Allen is also a true freshman, 18 years old, and he, he scores now two touchdowns on the game. And Sean Clifford just stayed out of the way. 14 for 19, 178 yards. 
didn't throw any terrible interceptions. Uh, Parker Washington, Tinsley, the wide receiver, strains the tight end. But the Penn State defense looked great. Uh, big win. I, I Going into this game, I didn't think Penn State was going to win this game in this environment. I'm very impressed with how they came in and played. And to win in a, that environment with that noise and how the excitement and energy of the game, big, big win for Penn State. So, Ira, we talked earlier about perhaps the biggest win of the last decade for the Miami Dolphins. Can't really say the same about the rest of the Florida teams. We'll start with uh, Miami here first. And this is, I know Texas A&M was ranked, you know, higher than them during the, you know, in the preseason. Lost uh, to App State, obviously. I thought Miami was going to have a lot more in this game than they did. This is the type of game Miami, the environment, they had a, it was the largest crowd, 100-some thousand people at Texas A&M. They came in, they had 400 yards to uh, 264 yards for Texas A&M. They ran the ball, passed for 217, rushed for 175. But the whole problem was this. Miami punted the ball three times in the game. Now, you punt the ball three times, Texas A&M punted six. Like, you look at the stats, it's like, wow, Miami easily won the game. But on their five other drives, they tried field goals. They got nine points. It's unbelievable. They, they missed two field goals. They kicked three field goals. And they had these long drives of like, you know, 16-play drive field goals, 12-play drive. Their inability to score, inability to score points in the red zone killed them. And then they were down in the game, and they just could not score touchdowns. And just in a game that you really wanted to see Miami make that statement, this was their chance. National television, everybody watching them. It wasn't there. I, a big disappointment for Cabrera Cristobal for a Texas A&M team that was definitely hurting after losing to Appalachian State that seems to have problems all over on offense. But for Miami not to score, not to convert those touchdowns, very disappointing for the Hurricanes. And Ira, you know, pretty much all the top teams here went on to do what they needed to do. Yeah, I mean, this is a crazy day. One through nine. Georgia blew out South Carolina 48-7. to Stetson Bennett is emerging to Heisman Trophy. I mean, he's someone who was like a game manager last year. Now they're looking, well, he's improving, improving, improving. Maybe he might play in the NFL. Yeah, Alabama beat uh, Monroe 63-7. Ohio State scored 77 points on Toledo. Michigan 59 nothing over UConn. Clemson won by 28. Oklahoma played Nebraska, which is the name Nebraska is not really Nebraska, but Nebraska State or something else. They won 49-14. to USC wins 45-17. Oklahoma State wins 63-7 over Arkansas Blind Rest. And Kentucky played Youngstown State 31 yeah, nothing. Those nine teams, just all blowouts. Um, and that's what happened to those. And then I call them some near upsets. The Missouri State, which is Bob, coached by Bobby Petrino, was fired by the coach of Arkansas, went to Louisville. They were Arkansas served by 26 points. They were losing 17 nothing. They were down 21, 27-17 with 11 minutes to go. And I was like, rooting for Missouri State. Like, come on, win this game. They're an FCS school to win. It would have been amazing that they couldn't hold on and when they ended up losing by 11. South Florida and Florida, Florida's favorite by 23 over South Florida. And we're going to, you know, let me say, tell me what you said about Anthony Richardson, but you, he keeps saying it's going to be one of the top quarterbacks taken in the draft, but he was 10 for 18. Didn't look like it this week. <laughs> Yeah, no, no touchdown passes this year for him. No, it's crazy, and I, I've been, you know, one of the first people to tout him and really liking the Gators. But you know what we saw, especially last week, definitely not doing it for me. What were some of the other games that that were the near upsets? Well, Wake Forest, 37-36 to 36 over Liberty. Wake was favored by 18. I like what Liberty did at the end of the game. They went for two to try to win the game. Um, Virginia barely beat Old Dominion. Their favorite is by two. And UCLA played South Alabama. I think like 5,000 people showed up in the game at the Rose Bowl. <laughs> they won by one. If you're UCLA, you're not really that good, and you're favored by 15, you know, maybe not schedule South Alabama. But then uh, – but then there were a couple of the upsets. I mean, it's not like last week, but uh, Arizona State lost Eastern Michigan, and Herm Edwards, their coach, gets fired. I mean, if you really get with these wins, you get fired. Northwestern lost to Southern Illinois, but Pat Fitzgerald's not going to get fired on that. And Tulane, you're talking about those like undefeated teams, like Coastal Carolina that we've had their coach on, the, on our show. But Tulane is one of the last undefeated of the group of five teams. They beat Kansas State um, 17-10. Uh, and then there are other games that were like, they were called upsets, really, like Washington beat Michigan State. Terrible performance by Michigan State to go to Washington and lose that game. And then Oregon blow out number 12 BYU. Um, not saying that Washington, uh, I mean, Washington and Oregon, they're you know, two of the top teams in the Pac-12, but they, that was big wins for the Pac-12. Now, with you, this, those are wins that help USC, because if USC ends up beating those teams, then it makes it look better. And I've kept saying that of all the teams that Georgia's in the playoffs, Alabama's in the playoffs, Ohio State's in the playoffs, then I look for USC also to be in the playoffs. We talked about UM and uh, UF both not getting off to the right start, but FSU kind of didn't have much expectations for this team looking pretty good. Yeah, I mean, 
35, they played on Friday night, beat Louisville 35-31, and going into Louisville, winning that game, that was key. And uh, right, I mean, I think Florida State is opening up to this. Uh, I mean, it, the wins haven't been, you know, they're, they're, they're close wins, but, but hey, look, they're 3-0, and and, and look at the troubles that Miami has and Florida has. It was, you know, to be 3-0 and right now, that's what I think they want to be. What are we watching next week in college? Um, well, one last game I want to mention is Appalachian State. They went, game day went there, and they're playing Troy, and uh, they threw a hail, true Hail Mary, you know, with a stadium packet. It just beat Texas A&M, and they come and win a, on a Hail Mary from a 60-yard pass to win the game, which is pretty cool to see because you love those, those Hail Marys. But next week, not that many big games. Clemson is favored by seven over Wake Forest. Florida's at Tennessee. Tennessee's favored by 11. Wait, Tennessee people like them. Arkansas at Texas A&M. Big win for big game for both those teams. Um, Wisconsin at Ohio State. What do you think the line is? 18. Ohio State favored by Wisconsin. And uh, Kansas State, which was lost this week against Tulane, is now going to go Oklahoma. Oklahoma's only favored by 13. I, I would expect Oklahoma to blow them out in that game. But, uh, but it's, it's just an average schedule next week in college football. Ben, before we wrap it up, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about Canelo versus Triple G. Yeah, well, boxing, you know, to have Canelo Alvarez, one of the top boxers of all time, one of the best boxer now, the Triple G, G uh, Ganella Ganakin, uh, they, the first match they had was a draw, second, Triple uh, Canelo won, and nobody talked about this fight. There was no build-up, nothing, and it was actually a fairly good fight. Canelo won the first part of the round, and Triple G came back and, and won, like, the final four rounds, but it was like nobody's watching. I'm watching on an iPad, no bar had it. It shows the state of boxing when you have a match like this and, and no one really cared so much. But Canela, you know, established himself as the dominant fighter in boxing. We are out of time. Thanks so much to Seth Wickersham. He's Ira. I'm Mike. We can talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.